So we've reached the end of Joel, and we've had all of these cascading crises for the people of God. And last week, we discovered that the nations around Israel saw the crisis that was taking place in Jerusalem. They took advantage of the crisis. They came in, they robbed the temple, they enslaved the children until the people of God were left feeling nothing but shame and this bitter overwhelming desire for revenge. And here we are at the end of Joel, battered and bruised, somewhat sick of locusts, I believe, but clinging to a hope that God made to them a promise, and he resolved always to restore those that belong to him and also to avenge those who are against him. These are the promises of God. Joel follows an epic plot that is reminiscent of some of our favorite films. Basically, there's a group of vulnerable people. At the lowest point, a bad guy strikes. The people despair. A lone prophetic voice, probably a weirdo, gives them some hope. And after a long wait, a rescuer rides into town, and the vulnerable are redeemed, and the bad guys are brought to book. This is basically the plot of every fairy story and sci-fi and western and historical fiction and modern thriller and cartoon series that you might want to name. Has it occurred to you that Batman begins, Taken, Love Actually, Star Wars, The Lego Movie, are Schindler's List? What a strange thought. It is not that Liam Neeson has been typecast. It is that we only have one plot. Hollywood only has one story. All the great stories that we tell fundamentally are a riff on the story of God. It's why we like these stories. There's a sort of ache in our heart for the epic plot of crisis and renewal. And so with the book of Joel, answering, it's the original story, answering so many of our heartfelt desires for a good plot. Why don't we read it very much? Why is this one of the least popular books in the Bible? Why don't we preach it? Not one of us a few weeks ago could remember ever having heard a single sermon on the book of Joel, let alone an entire series on it. Why don't we read it? Perhaps because we don't know how. Joel assumes that we understand a couple of things. First, he assumes that we are immersed in numerous key biblical themes, and that we're holding them all at the forefront of our minds. And secondly, Joel assumes that we understand how biblical prophecy works and how to read it. So to help us, I've placed this funny little diagram at the uh, beginning of the bulletin. If you think it looks pretty, Bridget made it. If you think it looks bad, I made it. Uh, I, I gave her a bit of a dog's dinner and she beautified it, but it's, it is at least clear. I'll give it that. So biblical themes. Here's a chart that will serve as a kind of recap of some of the things we've looked at as a church. And you can see here just listed some of the key biblical themes that occur in Joel. And that often... Joel will allude to one of these themes in the same way that uh, a movie director might use music. Often Joel just uses one little tiny word, and that's designed to 
fire off your mind and, and make you think, make these connections with a bigger story. Uh, the movie Jaws, church. How does the tune in Jaws go? Please do it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, I'm only asking you to do it because I did it a couple of weeks ago and I watched it back and it was actually quite embarrassing. So thank you very much uh, for doing the Jaws tune. Every time you hear a doodum doodum, what do you think is going to appear on the screen? A shark. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Joel does the same thing with words. It is as obvious to the original hearers of Joel as the Jaws thing is to us. Every time, for example, Jaws, uh, Jaws every time Joel says the word uh, food or grape, or, or harvest, they think Eden. Durdum, durdum, shark, food, Eden. It really is that clear. It makes them think of Eden. Eden was the beginning of the story. Eden was the garden where they walked with God intimately in the cool of the day. It's a place of provision, a place of presence. It's all about knowing God and being blessed by God. And they crave Eden. We all do. We all crave the good old days. Eden's tune is to do with food. And I've suggested that reading the book of Joel without knowing how to hear Eden's tune is like watching a movie on mute with just the subtitles on the screen. And you can do that. And you can follow the plot. You can understand what's going on. But you're not immersed in it. You miss some of the kind of depth of, of, of the movie if you watch it that way. Turn the sound up. Uh, Egypt gets a tune. Slavery, sin. Every time you hear something like that, plague, that reminds you of Egypt, a time when they were far from God. Wilderness gets a tune. This is about not knowing which direction you're going to go. Wilderness is about hand-to-mouth living. It's about wondering whether I'm going to move towards consolation and closer to God or desolation and further from God. A dry patch spiritually. You might put it that way. Covenant gets a tune, grace, justice, the end of the world. All these great biblical themes are alluded to often with just a little tiny word, durdum durdum shark. It's pretty clear when you put it that way. So you need to understand that when Joel uses these words, he is situating their crisis in the middle of a much bigger story. He's showing them where their experience fits in the greater story of, of God. And he's reminding them that like all good stories, there is a hero on the way. And that we are headed towards a final scene. This plot will be resolved. Biblical themes. Secondly, uh, I've, I've tried to draw what Ben described two weeks ago here in this second diagram. Joel is a prophetic book. We need to understand that a, a biblical prophecy is often going to be fulfilled more than one time. There will often be an immediate fulfillment of the prophecy, and then hundreds of years later, it will be fulfilled again in an even bigger way. And then, at some point in the future, fulfilled again in an ultimate way. So, uh, the immediate. When uh, Joel says... You're going to get some food. Bosh, they eat. It really is that simple. There's a very immediate resolution. But uh, don't forget that this food.
Food is highly symbolic. Food reminds you of Eden, and prophecy works in multiple layers. So when Joel says to them, you're going to eat, he doesn't only mean you're going to eat. He means you're going to be satisfied in the future in an even greater way. When Jesus comes, Jesus describes knowing him as being like attending a feast, a wedding feast even sometimes, he says. Jesus, pulling this theme from Joel, says that actually knowing him, having an intimate relationship with him, is like being back in Eden. On the night that he was betrayed, what did Jesus give us to remember himself by? A meal, a prophetic meal that we'll share in a moment, a meal that looks back throughout the story of God to a time of slavery in Egypt and rescue, and that also looks ahead to an ultimate fulfillment in the end when he returns to make all things new. And the book of Revelation describes the return of Jesus Christ as the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are the bride of Christ, and what awaits for us is an eternal feast. So do keep the bulletin open as uh, we look for these themes. And every time Joel makes a promise, try and imagine not only what it might mean in an immediate sense, but also an intermediate and an ultimate sense uh, as well. And we can use this this little chart uh, like a bingo card and see if we can check off every single one of them in the last chapter uh, of Joel. It is possible. Uh, If you feel like you've got house, just shout bingo. That'll be kind of fun. Joel 3.9. Bulletins open, please, and Bibles as well. And let's do what we can. Joel 3.9. Proclaim this among the nations. Let me pause and make an important point. Joel is not speaking at this point to the people of God. He's speaking to the enemies, the nations. And he tells them, consecrate for war. We've seen that word consecrate before in the book of Joel. Consecration means to set aside or make holy or sanctify a person or a thing. This is covenant language. Bingo. Sanctification. But there's a twist in this command. It's actually quite an ironic command because these are not holy guys who are told to consecrate themselves. God is saying to his enemies... Do your mumbo-jumbo. Do your stuff. Dance around a stick or whip yourself until you bleed. Kill a baby. Get your potions. Do your parades. Bring your medals and your degrees and your credit reports. Whatever your gods are, gather them all up into a great big heap and bring them with you. Get them on your side and bring them for a final scene. And let's see how they do, these gods of yours. Verse 9, let all the men of war draw near, the enemy soldiers. Verse 10, let the weak say, I am a warrior. Everyone must come to the fight. Every enemy, not just the frontline troops, but those back home who supported them as well. There are no civilians in the final battle. Everyone is a combatant of one side or the other. And he says in verse 10 to the enemies, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And Nicole was saying earlier that uh, normally in Scripture it's the other way around, this command. 
In both Isaiah and Micah, the reverse is said. Usually, when this image is used in Scripture, the instruments of war, Egypt's tools, are beaten and turned into instruments of farming and harvest, Eden's tunes. Uh, normally, this is a double bingo, by the way, if you're still checking off the boxes. Uh, normally, what God says is that you've been fighting and struggling, but now I'm here. Now it's time for the good old days. Now it's time for harvest. So you won't need your swords anymore. Bend them and turn them into sickles because the harvest is ripe. And yet to his, en his enemies, God says the reverse. You've had an abundance at the expense of my people. Now it is time to fight. Bring your gods and bring your weapons for the final battle. It is time to fight me. Only verse 12. It's not a fight. It's a trial. Surprise, verse 12. Let the nations stir themselves up the enemies of God, and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. We saw last week that Jehoshaphat is a symbolic name. It means Yahweh has judged. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, says the Lord. Justice's tune can be heard playing in the land again. There's going to be a reckoning. Bingo. There's going to be justice. We're going to find out who did what to whom, and people are going to get what they deserve. Now, to the people of God, God turns now. He's addressed the enemies. Now, to the people of God, he turns and he says this, verse 13. Put in the sickle. They're armed with harvesting tools, not weapons. He says, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow. Clearly, Eden's tune. There is an abundant harvest. It's also the tune of grace, if you look at it carefully. Because what did the land look like five minutes ago? It was wrecked. The crops were wrecked by the locusts. The temple worship had ground to a halt because there was nothing to sacrifice and nothing to burn it with and nothing to make and nothing to do. The homes were crawling with bugs. The whole place was ruined. They did nothing, the people of God, to fill the wine press. The seeds dried under the clods, it says, a couple of chapters ago. There wasn't even any seeds to plant. The whole land had dried up, and now it is abundant with fruit. This is the tune of grace. Clearly, they did nothing to achieve all of this bounty. It was purely a gift. But there's another twist. God says, for their evil is great. Does anybody think that's weird? There's grapes, and now God says they're evil grapes. This is a very weird way to put it. Clearly, there is nothing evil about food, with perhaps the exception of deviled eggs. They are revolting, but ordinarily, there's nothing evil about food, meaning that the image has shifted. God is not actually talking about crops that are going to be cut off. He's not talking about grapes that are going to be trodden down. He's talking about the enemies of God. He's playing a lot of different tunes here all at once. I think overlaying Eden's tune with Justice's tune at the same time, making harvest into an image of judgment instead. 
You see how difficult this is to read if you don't have all of these concepts at the forefront of your mind. There's a very fine line, isn't there, between a symphony and a cacophony. It's a fine line, I'm afraid, a lot of Anglican churches seem to have found, but not ours, thanks to Robert. But uh, there is this fine line between playing a lot of music all at once and making it work and just finding it a mess. I think Joel is, is, is getting it right. There's a hybrid image here as images are laid upon one another. And this hybrid image of somehow Eden and justice being linked or harvest of crops and harvest of people being linked uh, is actually one that we find in both Isaiah, looking back, and in Revelation, looking ahead. We're in the final scene. At the end of the world, a harvest of nations will precede the return of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus himself says that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and separate one group of people from another as a farmer separates wheat from chaff. Same image. Joel looks ahead to this kind of final harvest of the nations. Not surprisingly, therefore, we now hear the end of the world tune. Anyone want to shout bingo? Verse 14. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The immediate judgment of those people in that valley, then and there, is merely a prophetic pre-echo of an even greater judgment that will face everyone in the end. And if this is true about justice, and the justice that we find in Joel, Perhaps this is also true about grace. Might the renewal of the people in the book of Joel have something to tell us about our own renewal? 100% yes. Are you in a crisis? Do you feel angry or ashamed about the past? Maybe something you did. Right now, right here today, do you feel confused? Do you feel spiritually dry? Do you feel like you're not quite sure which way your faith is going to go? What about the future? Are you worried about your eternal destiny? Are you worried about your kids? Because if you are, Joel has hope. But you better find it fast. Verse 15. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. Many times in the Bible, this is how the end of the world is described. This is standard Bible end of the world imagery. Verse 16 says, The heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. Do not place your hope in the material things of this world for it will all fade away. When the sun and the moon and the stars are rolled away and the earth begins to quake and is turned into a liquid, what security are you going to find in created things? How will you check on your investments if the universe has ceased to exist? You won't get a Wi-Fi signal. You can't do it. 
But for those who dwell with the Lord, there is something infinitely more secure than these created things. We are told that the one who holds all things together, by whose will all things exist, who governs the laws of physics and space, holds you in the palm of his hand. He cares about you. He'd do it all just for you. He knows every hair on your head. He'd do it all just for one of those hairs. Verse 17. This is for you. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion. This is covenant language. A promise. Intimacy with God. Verse 18, and in that day, at the end of the world, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, Eden, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Highly symbolic words. Eden's tune is playing really loud and clear right here. And we are being told at the end of all things, there will be an abundance for us that is infinitely greater than anything we've ever seen before. Anything that this crumbling world has to offer us is nothing compared to what God has for those that know him. Meanwhile, verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation. Edom a desolate wilderness. Egypt is Egypted, the wilderness is wildernessed. They get to done to them what they did to others because they have shed innocent blood. Do you see how the people of God are described? Do you know Jesus? Do you see how you are described in this verse? Innocent. In this great judgment, that is the verdict about you. Innocent means clear, clean, freed from guilt, freed from punishment, freed from sin. That is how God thinks of you. You ask God to come up with a word to describe you, the word would be innocent. What a beautiful word. How is it possible? How is this vindication achieved? When in reality, we're no better than anyone else. We're really not at all that different from those who are not here today and those who do not believe. How are we declared innocent? The answer is by blood. There's one more prophetic death hidden at the end of Joel, and it is that of God himself. Throughout Joel, we've seen that not only is God with us in this crisis, but in fact, he's brought this crisis down upon himself. He describes it as a crisis of my temple, my people, and my land. And you can die an enemy's death alone in the valley of judgment with the enemies of God, if you like, or he can die it for you on Calvary's hill. The very hill where Joel might have been standing as he said these words, is the same hill on which Jesus died. And he promises Jesus Christ, if we turn to him, we can dwell with him on that hill forever. 
Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the book of Joel with its swirling sounds is a challenge. But Father, I thank you that in your great grace, you've given us this epic to show us that uh, though we were once enemies, though we were once enslaved, you love us. So Lord Jesus, would we return to you this day? Would our hope be renewed? And would we look to your return as those who are confident? In your name alone. Amen.